Okay. I'm preaching through the book of Ephesians, and we, we're in chapter 4. Uh, last week in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, we saw unity. In fact, unity is the theme of chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians. We come to verses 7 through 16 today, and we see that Christ is the unifier. Let's read our passage, our text for the morning. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Christ, the unifier, he gives gifts to believers. He gives gifts to believers. In, in verses four to six, Paul used the word one a lot. He used it seven times, each time seeming more intense than the time before. In verse seven, he uses the phrase each one. Unity in the church. There's one body. Whole is the idea of verses one through six. Now he's emphasizing individuality. All kinds of different individuals make up the one church of Jesus Christ. Let's say you flew over a forest and you look down below. It would look green to you, right? One shade of green. If you were down on the ground and you walked through it, it would still look green to you, but you would see all kinds of different shades of green, dark greens, light greens. You, you would see some browns and reds and yellows, which you would have missed entirely from the air. It's still a green forest, but there's a lot more different trees and plants and colors than you would have seen before. So unity isn't uniformity. Unity isn't everyone thinking exactly alike. There's a variety in God's church. God loves variety and diversity. I mean, look at the animal world and the insect world. If you don't think that God loves variety and he gives different gifts to different people, he wants different viewpoints. We don't all look alike. We don't all think alike. Diversity is healthy. We have all these differences, yet we're one, Paul says. There's unity because Christ measured it out. He's the gift giver and unifier. 
verses 8 to 10, it seems like Paul goes on a different direction here. He quotes from Psalm 68, 18, which describes a conquering king returning to Jerusalem and ascending up the temple steps with prisoners in tow. And these conquered peoples gave gifts to the king. But Paul changes that imagery as another inspired writer of scripture changes it to Christ giving gifts. Remember the temple of Diana that was in Ephesus, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The Ephesians and and many pagans of that day believed that the goddess Diana descended from heaven and landed on that exact spot in Ephesus where they erected this magnificent temple to her. Well, Paul seems to be contrasting Christ and Diana, that Christ descended from heaven to earth, but he did more. He ascended back to heaven. So therefore, he's greater than Diana. He's enthroned in the highest heaven, on the greatest throne, showing his greatness. In verse nine, it says he descended to the lower regions of the earth. Now, that's kind of a strange way of putting his dissension. It sounds like more is going on there than he just came to the earth to be born as a baby in Bethlehem. What could Paul be talking about? Now, if you read the Apostles' Creed, that's one of the oldest documents in church history and certainly the oldest creed. And it includes this verse. It says that Christ descended to hell. Now, there's not much in the Bible else about that. Uh, We're not going to build a denomination on that idea or that verse, but it is biblical. And many scholars believe that between Friday afternoon to Sunday morning, that Jesus went to Hades. That's the Greek word for the underworld. The Old Testament word was Sheol. We would understand it as hell, where Satan held people captive. Two compartments in the underworld In the Jewish mind, hell, the fiery place of punishment for the wicked and paradise or Abraham's bosom for the righteous. Jesus talks about that, believe it or not, in Luke 16. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. Covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, her hell, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham. Have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. In order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. So we see Jesus talking about a dead man who has a conversation with Abraham and Lazarus. And don't think of this as a parable or kind of a made up story. 
because names are mentioned here who identify real people. We see that Satan holds both class classes captive. And that Christ descended to those lower regions, to Hades, to rescue the saints held captive there and took them to heaven. Matthew 27 may give us a glimpse of that. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, when a Christian dies, he or she's spirit goes directly to heaven. So Christ went through all of that to gift you with gifts. It's another example of his amazing grace. So you are gifted this morning. Every Christian is. First Corinthians 12, 7 says to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. And there's several other places other than First Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4 that mention gifts. Don't think of these as exhaustive lists. I think there are more gifts than are listed here. In fact, what follows in Ephesians 4 here are more or less offices, I would say. Also notice there's a difference between spiritual gifts and natural gifts or talents. Your natural talents and gifts you're born with and you develop. But spiritual gifts are given after your conversion by the Holy Spirit. Verses 11 and 12. Who does the work of ministry? God's people. Not the pastors or the people listed here in their offices. You do. Now, I think church people might think, Pastor, we pay you to do it. The pastor's supposed to do it, but he doesn't get around to doing it, so we have to do it for him. Some of the offices mentioned here, apostles, they are the sent ones, the original 12 disciples who founded the church. Matthias replaced Judas, Acts 126, and they cast lots for them and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Paul, Barnabas, James, the brother of Jesus and others in the New Testament are also called apostles because of their important work at the foundation of the church. Prophets, we hear that, we think Old Testament prophets more than likely, people like Isaiah and Daniel. And we also have a notion of uh, prediction. Prophets kind of predict the future. And, and there is an aspect of foretelling. But much more common was the work of the prophet in the Old Testament and New Testament of foretelling, which would be more along the lines of preaching. The, the prophet would hear a word from God, an immediate word, and then would proclaim that to the people. It might be a comforting word. Oftentimes it was a hard word, which made the prophet an unpopular person, and they were often killed. I think of evangelists as the OBGYNs of the church. They bring the new babies in. They share Christ with unbelievers and win them to Christ. Now, all of us must witness, but some people are particularly gifted by God for that task. And when people go overseas as evangelists, they're called missionaries. Now, the shepherd or pastor teacher role, the grammar shows that to be one gift, not two. So pastors are teachers. Pediatricians is how I like to think of pastors. 
They take care of the babies and help them grow up into maturity. But they watch over the old ones, too. They disciple and nurture and train them to become mature in the faith. In New Testament times, some terms were used synonymously, like shepherd and overseer and elder. We see that in 1 Peter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly. I understand this to be my calling and gifting, but it certainly wasn't before I was saved. I had no thought for church or Christ's people. I had no love for them. I only loved myself and was concerned about my own interests. I didn't like to read and study and getting up in front of people and speaking was a terrifying thought. But when God calls you and gifts you to serve him in whatever way they might be, you do it. And one duty of a pastor teacher is to help others find their gifts so they can serve properly. It's not good when pastors do try to do all the work themselves because then they serve as a bottleneck and hardly anything gets done. I want you to picture a football game in your mind. On one hand, all the guys are big and they're dressed in black. And on the other side, the other team, all the players are sitting up in the stands. The only one out on the field is the coach. And so the ball is kicked off by the huge guys all dressed in black uniforms. The coach catches the ball at kickoff, runs a few yards and is buried under an avalanche of the other team. They carry the coach off on a stretcher. So obviously this model stinks and isn't Christ's intention for his church. Every Christian is a player. You're in the game. You've been prepared and equipped by God. So put your uniform on, suit up, get off the bench, get out of the holy huddle and get out into the game. Get involved. Use your gift. Give it a try. Don't let me make all the mistakes. You will find the most fulfillment in your life when, when you're serving and flowing in your giftedness. First Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it. To serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Something else Paul is getting across here is Christ the unifier. He talks about the goal for believers. So we have the gifts for believers and the goal for believers. Gifts aren't an end in themselves. The end result is service to others and spiritual maturity for yourself. Spiritual gifts aren't toys or weapons. We don't need to fight over them or be jealous of other people's gifts or let them cause division in the church. Just think how much church conflict has happened over the years over the gift of music. Gifts don't prove spiritual maturity. Fruit does. Fruit like love and joy and peace. Very gifted people can be spiritually immature. And I think that's so sad to see great gifts and small character. Character is what's important. So two ladies were putting flowers on a grave and they were looking at the other tombstones. 
and they saw one that read, here lies John Smith, a politician, an honest man. And one lady said, good heavens, isn't that awful? They put two John Smiths in the same grave. China built a wall to keep invaders out. And in the first 100 years of finishing the Great Wall of China, they were invaded three times. And on none of those occasions did the enemy breach the wall. They just simply bribed the gatekeepers. And D.L. Moody was once asked, who has caused you the most trouble in your ministry? And he said, D.L. Moody. Spiritual maturity matters. It's important. And if you've ever felt frustrated by a lack of spiritual maturity and growth in your own life, hey, that's common to us all. We all want to keep growing and keep attaining. So I want to tell you a story about Hank. Now, don't look at Hank Garner this morning. <laughs> Unfortunately, this Hank and this story from this pastor, this church had the same name. He, this Hank, had been in his church for over 70 years. So we know that's not Hank Garner. This Hank is a cranky old man, and he's been a member of his church since he was a cranky young man. He complains about everything. His wife, his kids, his grandkids, his job, his boss, his church. But he especially complains about church music. He complains to the people in the church about it. He complains to the visitors who come on Sunday about it. He tells them the music here is way too loud. Now, it isn't. And the leaders have asked him repeatedly, stop complaining about the church music, especially to visitors. Then the pastor says in the story, one day OSHA visited us. OSHA is the government agency that oversees safety. The pastor asked the OSHA person, why are you here? And he said, we've gotten a complaint about your church, that the decibel levels are too high. You know, like at rock concerts in airports. And the pastor knew immediately who had called OSHA. And the man left and apologized and said, look, my buddies were teasing me at work this morning that I was going to bust a church. Seventy years of church life has not brought a smile to Hank's face. And, you know, sometimes I think this can be partially the pastor's fault because we don't expect much of our people, you know, just show up on Sunday and give. And that's enough. We don't expect significant change. Like people are really going to use their gifts and really serve God and really make a difference for the kingdom of God. But we're gifted by God to serve. And when we do that, we grow. So unity in the body, verses one to six, one body, then individually as a part of that body, we result as we use our gifts in unity again. You see that in verse 13 until we attain to the unity of the faith. And it says attain. We haven't arrived yet. We're working at it. So we've talked about character and maturity. That's the goal of gifts. Then in verse 14, Paul Says, and I, he may have somebody in mind there in Ephesus, or maybe he's making a general point. He talks about children. Look, babies are cute. I know that full well. But we don't want him to stay a baby. 
That wouldn't be good. Immaturity in Christians is marked by selfishness, acquiring, thinking the world revolves around them. Immature Christians don't know the word of God. They're tossed by the waves. Do problems throw you off? They're carried by every wind of doctrine. Who's the latest TV preacher or Internet preacher that I'm enamored with? But I'm not sure about their doctrine. False teachers are sneaky. They mix a little bit of truth in there with a lie. They're very skilled at deceiving people. And in the end times, Jesus warned us, there will be lots of deception. So grow up. And then Paul ends this section by mentioning three marks of maturity. You might say, how do I know that I'm making progress? These are three good indicators that he mentions in verses 15 and 16. Speaking the truth. What's coming out of my mouth? I'm not gossiping. Can I hold my tongue? I'm not a negative talker. I'm a positive talker. In my words, I want to give hope and encouragement to others. I love the truth. You're a person that you know what needs to be said, not always what people want to hear. But you do it in love. So speaking the truth in love. Secondly, are you a person that submits to Christ? Are you willing to come under his lordship, his leadership, following Jesus as Lord? He's the head. He's the boss. Certainly, I'm not. This isn't my church. I'm not the head of this church. And either are you, even if you've been here 40 or 50 years. Jesus is. He's in charge. And I submit and come under his headship. And lastly, of course, love. Love is any church's lifeblood. It, it keeps us working together together. So we keep on forgiving each other and thinking the best of one another. Each Christian doing his or her part is the church. So don't ever think this church doesn't need me. We do. You can't see your liver, but you need it to live. So maybe you're our liver. I know this. You're important to this church. Let me close with the quote by Stuart Briscoe. What he said could happen in a church. Picture this. If our world is to see a real picture of what God is doing, it needs to see considerably more than individual people finding a panacea for individual ills. It deserves to be shown a unique society of totally diverse people so united in Christ that they're working in many ways through their God given gifts to build up individuals and produce an alternative society that's becoming increasingly mature and thus attractive. Lord, that's what we want to be. A diverse group of Christians with many gifts, each of us using our gifts for you. That not only would that help us become more and more mature as we serve others, but it would bless not only your church, but the world, as they would see, as Stuart Briscoe says, an alternative society, something different than the world, something very attractive. And they would want to know Jesus. Help us to be those kind of Christians, I pray in Jesus name. Amen. Let's Amen. stand.